welcome to the Veterinarian Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas, and I am excited. You listen all the way through the episode, or if you just want to fast forward to the end, I'm going to start posting opportunities for A, practice ownership, and B, associateships with folks that I know around the country that are doing great things. And I'm going to do a quick read of the opportunity, have links in the show notes to those opportunities. And I hope for someone out there, it can be a great connection to find either that practice ownership dream opportunity and or a great associateship that leads to the balance, the work life that you're looking for. So with that, excited to launch that. There will be more over time as more owners start uh, reaching out, but I am excited to do that. So check that out at the end. Don't leave too fast after the guest wraps up. If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. You've heard me talk about the opportunity in urgent care. So VetCheck believes in the power of your capacity to influence your patients, patient families, and be a leader in your community. How they do this is by giving you the freedom to take ownership of your future to make the biggest impact in your patients' lives. They equip you with a turnkey opportunity to take action on the dream through a unique pathway to owning your own VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center franchise. They provide a solution to remove obstacles like competing against corporate dollars in the community that you want to be in and having access to hospital ownership, medical directorship, and more. Also, you become a partner along the journey. A vet check pet urgent care center franchise is the answer. If you're interested, check out episode number 80, where I talked to Dr. Siva and he shares more about his story and the opportunity. So if this sounds like something that's interesting to you, reach out and learn how you can own your own vet check pet urgent care center franchise today by visiting vetcheckforpets.com, which again is vetcheckforpets.com. All right. Today I'm joined by two guests, Dr. Wendy Hauser and Dr. Lucas Pantalone. Dr. Hauser is the founder of Peak Veterinary Consulting. She's a speaker, an author, has 30 plus years of experience in veterinary medicine, which is great. And then Dr. Lucas is an equine veterinarian and DVM One Health industry advisor, among many other things related to veterinary medicine. So I want to just thank you both for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yes, thanks, Isaiah. It's a pleasure to be here. Lucas, I wanted to start with you because I know one of the big passions that you have is something called value-based care. And you mentioned a couple different times, and one of the things you mentioned is when, when working on cases, this idea of ownership and it being an issue, I wanted you to kind of start there. And Wendy, I know you'll have the thing that I love about this conversation or what will be great is just the different points of view. So Wendy, feel free to chime in as well. But Lucas, can you dig into that idea of value-based care and the idea of ownership with cases? Yeah. So value-based care is a concept that is being brought into the human health sector for several years now, and they're trying to change the way they approach cases. And it's basically based on value, right? And value, as we know, if we read different business papers, value has different meanings according to what you are looking at. But it's important for me to think about that value really is placed on the eyes of the beholder, right? And when we talk about value in healthcare or in veterinary healthcare, 
the formula that I like to use is that value is the quality of care that we provide over the cost of care. And when we talk about quality, it's important to measure the outcomes that matter to patients, but not only the outcomes, also the patient experience in human health. And in veterinary medicine, it should be the owner's experience through the care process. And that is over the cost of care imply in you know, how much does it cost to go through the care of a particular clinical condition. And, you know, it's important to know that value-based care is not synonymous to lowering cost or cutting cost, but is talking about controlling the cost and how we can provide care, sometimes decreasing the cost, the overall cost of care, and sometimes during certain areas or certain steps of the care, we have to increase the cost of care in order to decrease the cost of care overall through the whole cycle of care for that particular condition. So that's how I define value-based care and from human medicine and how it can be adapted to uh, veterinary medicine. So is it more of ensuring that at the end of the day, it's not something, because I know one of the pieces, and we'll chat on this later, you talked, you and Wendy wrote the Beyond Wellness Plans and Chronic Diseases. So the idea of ensuring that at the end of the day, there is treatment that's there and it's not something that maybe is ongoing. So measuring that over the lifetime versus just in this moment, in this month, right? What's the cost of care versus exactly. the, the, the quality of it? Okay. Yeah, and it depends what you're measuring, right? If you're talking about a surgical case, for example, TPLO in a dog that has cruciate ligament uh, injury, you would include the process of care, you know, from looking at the primary care practitioner, the consult with the surgeon, the surgery, and then include the post-op care as well. So you would add, for example, I don't know, 90 days after the care that will include the rehab of that dog and see how it does through the whole cycle of care. And then from a compensation perspective with the different individuals and the parties involved, does it change? Is the way that veterinary medicine is set up today still functional for that? How do you think about that? Yeah, that's the complicated part because when we talk about bundle care, as Wendy and I wrote that article in, in human medicine, one of the advantages of bundle care is that you can create this integrated practice unit. So it's this healthcare team that include the generalist and the specialist and the rehab team all coming together in the care of that particular clinical condition throughout the cycle of care. And yeah, how can you include, for example, the specialist care and charges for that would be part of that bundle care. And that is probably the most tricky part. And may maybe Wendy has something to add there. So Lucas and I met via LinkedIn when Lucas reached out to me and we had a couple of phone conversations and I love the diversity of his thought process. You know, with his human focused MBA, he brings a lot of out of industry knowledge and perspective to the veterinary industry, which is something that I think is sorely lacking. I always like to look outside the industry to get new ideas and Lucas is full of them. Great ideas. So we started talking about value-based care. And of course, I go immediately to Geisinger, which is a group in Pennsylvania. 
that really compensates doctors, not based on the numbers of tests that they run, but how well their patients do. So we originally were going to write a paper on value-based care. And I just could not get my head around how to divorce value-based care from the financial aspects of veterinary medicine. Because one, the animals don't have the autonomy to be adherent to the treatment plans. They depend on a human. And that autonomy also includes a financial component, or I shouldn't say the autonomy, but the dependence includes a financial component. And so when he was telling me about this bundle care concept, I said, now there's something we can work with. And so basically, I would not create bundled care for everything in a practice. But the concept behind bundled care is that a lot of times with chronic diseases, particularly. So we let me even take a step back further. We provide bundled care in veterinary medicine already. They're called wellness plans. So that's great to be able to predict what it's going to take to provide excellent preventive care to pets. That's pretty easy to figure out. What's difficult is when you go into chronic conditions. And that's where the chronic care bundles have so much promise. Because as a client, you're facing a lot of money up front to get the animal regulated. And then it smooths out. Well, what if we could take that front heavy cost and break it up into 12 equal non-discounted payments over the course of the year. And you can build things into that based on the beliefs of the doctors. So in each practice, each doctor would need to create a treatment algorithm for the conditions in which you're going to offer bundled care. So you would want to make sure that you have enough of that illness in the practice to be able to justify creating a chronic care bundle. So things to think about might be hypothyroidism in dogs. It could be arthritis in dogs, although that's a little bit more tricky when you start bundling in some of the great rehab potential. It may be chronic kidney disease in cats. It could be hyperthyroidism in cats. So there are a lot of diseases, diabetes. You know, take a look at your diagnostic codes. I hope you're using them in your practice software. And I hope you're pulling out and and you can take a look and identify the numbers of these diseases and then choose those most frequent diseases to be able to create these treatment algorithms that are buy-in and co-created algorithm from all doctors. Everybody has to buy into this. But think about it. Things that usually go out the door, like prescriptions, can be bundled into this. Diets can be bundled into this, and clients are paying for these over the course of 12 months. And the other thing that you can bundle into that are rechecks. So the patients actually get the care that you want them to get without the interference of economic limitations. So I hope that that addresses it a bit. Yeah, and and Wendy brought in a, a good point talking about chronic conditions, and I think that's a good opportunity to start. And then you don't want to bundle all the chronic conditions that you see in the practice, right? You have to start small. So you start with choose one or two and then see how that works through your practice. And to the question that you brought up, I say about how you bundle the specialist there, an opportunity with bundle care is to maybe include, let's say you have a a dog with diabetes and could you include once a year consult with a specialist to kind of fine tune it or if you have a, an issue, but you have to keep in mind the risks as well and 
overall decline will pay a bundle for the whole year in monthly installments. And you have to kind of fine tune it as you go, depending on what services you're using. But it is a really good opportunity to really create a team around that clinical condition to add value, improve the outcomes, and ultimately decrease the cost because the owner won't have to pay upfront. And sometimes the cost of a bundle overall could be a little bit cheaper than just paying upfront, co- upfront cost. And then you can say it's healthier, right, overall. And I'm going to add on to that a, a few things. Chronic care bundles do not include the diagnoses in the way we wrote the article. They kick in after the diagnosis has been made. So the clients do pay for the initial testing, radiographs, ultrasounds, out of pocket. Because you just don't know which way the disease process is going to go to feed it into an algorithm. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. And then Lucas was talking about this whole concept of the team-based care, which I think he could probably explain a little bit better based on the human medicine, the integrative teams, Lucas, that you've discussed with me. Because I think that that really speaks to a lot of what's going on in the practice, problems and practices with engagement and creating purpose and meaning and allowing all of our team members to work to the top of their license. Yeah. Well, before I get into that, something to add to Wendy said, bundle cares also doesn't include, for example, you have a diabetic dog because the owner didn't pay enough attention to it, it goes into DKC, right? So you have to admit that dog into an emergency setting, which you need to re-regulate that dog and put it back into back into shape, let's say. And that wouldn't be included as part of the bundle. So any emergency or any complications outside of what you described with the algorithm, like Wendy stated, would not be included on that bundle. And, and, uh, and before, before Lucas gets into the integrative thing, one other caveat is if you're going to do bundled care, you have to know what it costs you to provide your services. And you have to keep an eye on that. With the way that prices have been increasing in the last year in practices, it may be that uh, it definitely you're going to have to recalculate these on an annual basis. You cannot just spitball it and say we're going to increase by 4%. You really have to know what it costs you and what you want your profitability to be. And that's where someone like you, Isaiah, comes in. What you just said there, I was going to bring that up, but I love the idea of the treatment algorithm. I think that's such a smart way to approach it. And you made the little kind of joke, but also the candid smile on the diagnostic codes. It's like, yeah, good data will allow you to do some of these things. If you don't have good information, that might be the first step is like getting clarity on what are we actually seeing? What are we doing? And then you can build this out versus, oh, it's a great idea. We should run with it. It's like, well, you might not be ready yet because your information isn't good. But the other piece, you know, the buy-in and then Lucas, I want to have you kind of talk about the integrative teams and the idea. I think the term was purpose and meaning up into the care that they're able to give with their licensing. Wendy is, I think is the way that you just framed it, which is great of leveraging and utilizing the team and not trying to micromanage and say, I'm going to do everything. Right. And I think in this example has been used over and over and over again. Right. You look at dentistry, look at hygienists and how much work they do. And then you go into veterinary medicine and it's like, okay, you have techs, you have these people that want to do more and they aren't given the ability to go do more. And I think that is a struggle, but Lucas, I'd love for you to kind of unpack that and explain what you've seen and what your suggestion would be. And then I'm going to come back to another question that kind of 
there, there, there's a lot to say about that, but one of the things is that everybody really should work on top of their license, right? So you should have technicians do the work that they're best trained to do, you know, pull blood, do some checkup care on those dogs to relieve the load on the vet. You know, the receptionist should do the answer the phone and the veterinarian should do what is being trained and paid to do, right? You don't want to have the veterinarian answer the phone because that would be a very expensive receptionist. So if everybody works at the team and as a team and does at the top of their license, that will create a more efficient and effective team working and providing a service. The other thing around that and what I mentioned in creating integrated practice units is like everybody kind of work as a team, including veterinarians and creating those algorithms is a little bit about putting standards on how we are going to do things in the practice. And we veterinarians don't really like the word standardizing things because we like to do the things we do the way we like to do it. And we don't like to agree on a uniform way to do things. And I really like a quote that I always put in my presentations from cardiothoracic surgeons at the Mayo Clinic, which is one of the top clinics in the world and is based on value-based care. And it says, all five of us are very good at what we do, but we all do it differently. So at least four of us must be doing it wrong. So, and that talks about the fact that these cardiothoracic surgeons, they say, well, why are we doing it different? Why is the outcome maybe different or the same? Why are the cost of care with the five of us different? How we can uniform this, how we can bring something that will provide good value, a good patient experience at a reasonable cost, and we all do it kind of the same way, create these algorithms. So I think that is key to work together and is a key part of this value-based care, how we can come all together and create these integrated practice units to provide better value. So I'm going to build on what Lucas just said. No one wants a cookie cutter practice. Okay, There's a lot of latitude within medicine. And I've often said, if you put 100 vets in a room and ask them a question, you'll get 100 different answers and they'll all be right. What your clients deserve is consistent medicine. And that's where guidelines and protocols and policies come into play. So for example, we had guidelines for what happened in each of the different types of exams. So if this is a wellness exam, ophthalmoscopes are used, otoscopes are used. If the dogs are over the age of six, and yes, for the fear-free in the audience, you're going to hate all of these things, but we would do rectal exams on all dogs over the age of six because we wanted to make sure that we weren't finding anything in the anal glands or if it was a male dog, any prostatic problematic enlargement. And so our clients came to expect that. And to make sure we were on the same page, once a year, we asked our veterinary technicians and assistants that were in the exam rooms to grade the doctors. How well did they adhere to the guidelines that we had established? And that also had the benefit of creating really consistent medical records. So it was great. And to Lucas's point, when you find out why you're doing something different, it's a learning opportunity. Mm -hmm. So I had... Dr. Fine, who is now a rehab specialist in the Denver area, was one of my part-time vets. 
and she knocked it out of the park, according my, to my technicians and assistants, when she did her musculoskeletal exams, because that was part of every comprehensive exam, every wellness exam, palpation of all joints. And we asked, it, it was great that we had that insight that she did a more thorough exam because we thought we were doing great exams. And so we went back to her and said, Karen, what can you teach us to help us be better? So it allowed us to up our game too. So I see these as opportunities. These learning units are rich in opportunities to share, to collaborate, to help create a safer culture. Yeah, absolutely. And we really need to think about veterinary medicine is a little bit of an art as well, like human medicine. So we don't want to drift away from that, but implementing some guidelines and some algorithms for some of the important medical conditions will be good to have some uniformity. How do you think insurance plays a role in the human health aspect of some of the things you talked about versus veterinary medicine? And then do you think the adoption of insurance in veterinary medicine changes things? Going back to the art, the uniform, the standards, and giving freedom and flexibility for that doctor, that veterinarian to make the best judgment call versus having to go get approval. Like let's say their human health peers might with insurance to say, oh, can we do that? Can we not? I think that's a really interesting area. I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but to me, it seems an area that might make sense to go into next. Lucas, you take the human side and I'll take the animal side, okay? Well, the human side is very easy. It's very complex. There's a lot of waste and the insurance play a big role. And I think they're probably impair some of the innovation because it's such a complex bureaucracy. You know, I think it's about one third of the cost of human health care are lost in the bureaucracy of these really big monster, which is health insurance and how all these administrative costs. So veterinary medicine is much more nimble, and I think health insurance will play an important role without the complexities. I don't know if um, you agree with me, Wendy. Well, for the listeners, it's important that you know that I spent the last four and a half years as an executive with a pet insurance company, which is why I was so quick to say, hey, I'll jump on the pet insurance side of things, because it's a topic I'm really comfortable with. It's really important for veterinarians and their teams to understand that there are broad differences, really, I shouldn't say broad, distinct differences between the human healthcare and the veterinary product. Human healthcare is an accident and health product. Pet insurance is a property and casualty product because currently pets are considered property in all states. So that allows us to work under PNC. So the relationship between a insured pet, that relationship is between the policyholder, who is the client, and the insurance company. The veterinarians are integral to the system because they provide the services, but they are not, they don't need to get pre-approval for things. They're not being asked to modify how they offer medicine based on anything. The, the Burden is for veterinary hospitals to provide the medical records. That is a significant pain point, especially in today's practices with workforce shortages. And there are solutions being actively discussed right now. I still consult for my former employer, so I'm still in some of these conversations. 
So I think that the studies are clear, and there are many studies, and I've done original studies as well on this, that insured pets owners say yes easily, more easily, because they're not worried about the financial component. It doesn't mean they say yes to everything you recommend, because their individual belief systems are still going to factor into what they decide to do for their pet. What it's doing is removing the financial piece so that they can concentrate on caring for the pet and not the cost of care. We know that um, hospitals do make more money depending on what study you look at. It's anywhere from 12 to roughly 25% more for insured pets because clients can be more adherent. It's not that clients don't want to adhere to your recommendations. It's that a lot of them can't afford to. And so when you remove that barrier, then the pets get better care. The relationship with the client is better. And I can say this as a practitioner and a former hospital owner, because they're not worried about money and they really can focus on what's best for the pet. So that facilitates even better partnership between the veterinary care teams and the client. And again, you know, the pet benefits, the hospital benefits, it's a win-win. So do I think it will change how medicine is delivered? Not as long as pets remain property. So now I'm going to go on a soapbox. And you may choose to edit this out. No, no. Um, but <laughs> this <here> stays. <laughs> Wendy Unplugged. We really, as a profession, need to be exceptionally careful about the humanization of pets. Now, I am not talking about the family pet bond or the human animal bond, which undeniably plays a huge role in the reason that we welcome pets into our households and the reason that we love them and care for them. They bring value to our lives. What I am talking about is endowing animals with human rights. So ways that veterinarians are subconsciously or perhaps unknowingly buying into this is by calling pet owners mom and dad, by calling them pet parents, by calling them fur babies, grand puppies, grand kitties. All of that begins the slippery slope toward humanization. And Isaiah, I'm sure you're aware, as many of your listeners are, of the recent case of Happy the Elephant in the Bronx Zoo, who was actually had a lawsuit brought on her behalf to win her freedom from the zoo. I'm not sure what was going to happen to Happy after she became a human and won her freedom. I don't know if she was going to free range through Bronx. I think actually she was going to a sanctuary. But we really just have to be careful about that. And so maintaining pets as property. I mean, Spain looked at changing this and they have softened their laws a little bit on this, but if pets are humans, can we keep them as pets? Can we neuter them? Can we spay them? You know, think about some of the things that we do with our pets. Can we use them for working animals? These are big questions that need to be answered. And maybe you've had guests on your podcast that have tackled this and maybe not, but man, if you want to get into the controversy, that might be a really fascinating podcast. Yeah. So sorry to hijack and divert. No, but, no, 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 no. You know, that, that's good. That, that I talks that. about pet insurance. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I think the thought process on the insurance piece is just, is it going to get to the point where, because right now, yeah, you go in, you have the insurance, you bill for services, and the reimbursement happens on the back end to where it's not, you don't have anyone sitting in your practice dealing with insurance, right? Which is very different than on the human health side, which adds additional complexity, staff, hours, like all those things. So if you get 
insurance more integrated, do you then have that insurance coordinator person sitting in your like to where the billing it happens direct versus this reimbursement model? And well, I think that's so, kind of an interesting area as well, but not yeah. that we need so, you know, Trupanion has their Trupanion Express, which allows for adjudication of about 30% of their claims automatically. And they have patented that process, which has been a bit of a barrier for other insurance companies to look at auto adjudication. But there are other ways that companies are working around this. And some of them are offering, are partnering up with companies that offer an automatic payment service so that the client, because a pain point is a client has to have the money to pay the bill before they leave the vet or they have to sign the assignment over to the vet for when it's finally paid, right? So that is a little bit of a heavy ask, I think, for a lot of vet hospitals because they're not 100% sure what's going to be approved and what's not. And then do they want to get in the middle of a fee dispute? Uh, as an owner, I wouldn't want to. So there are companies that are looking at having a virtual credit card or a credit card that will cover the gap. So I have services done on my Labrador Oliver. The bill is $1,800. I can use one of these virtual pay cards. It covers the $1,800. And on the back end, the settlement happens and is applied to the balance. And then I get a bill for maybe my deductible or my copay. And so that's what's left on my credit card that I have to pay off. So I think you're seeing the insurance industry understands that this is a barrier and a pain point, and they're really working hard to find creative solutions. Lucas, any thoughts? Anything you want to add before I kind of switch gears? But well, thank you, Wendy. Uh, you know, a little bit on what regarding the humanization of pets, and there was a very interesting article in The Guardian in 2022, early this year, that, you know, really talks about are we doing too much to some of these pets to keep them alive? And is that humane? Are we really truly providing value to some of these pets because we can do things and racking up all these humongous bills for keeping these pets alive for a few more months because the dog, it's a human now, quote unquote. So are we, are we really providing a value-based care service to that? animal or, or are we prolonging their suffering and not providing good value because we are providing care at a huge cost. So that's something that I've been kind of thinking about it and I think kind of comes along with what Wendy just discussed. So something that we might need to be careful that the pendulum doesn't swing too far. Yeah, I think that's an interesting conversation to have of, you know, it's hard for then the veterinarian to say, this is the cost for that versus letting the owner make that decision, but also not, yeah, it's just tricky. Again, going back to the slippery slope of the humanization like uh, element, I think it just goes involved with that. But, but hey, with- hey, Isaiah, let's take a look and dive into that a little bit more. Sure. Let's take a look at price versus cost because they're two distinct entities. Absolutely. Price is the transactional aspect of providing veterinary care. It's fee for service. Cost is more enveloping. And it's what Lucas was just talking about. It involves looking at the cost of decline recommendations to the health and the well-being of the animal short and long term, 
or in Lucas's example, the cost of accepted well recommendations in maybe extending pain and suffering. And there are a lot of different people that will probably take offense to that last sentence. And I don't mean to create offense, but just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something. And again, that's getting back to those relationships with the partnership with the veterinarian and the individual beliefs of the pet owner. But the cost has to take into account the cost to the pet owner in not having the pet in the life, the cost in being able to provide, and I'm talking about emotional costs here, as well as time costs and resource costs in providing the care to the pet. And can they reasonably provide it? So it's very different from price. Uh, Early in my career, my first year out of school, and this really helped to shape my thoughts on who I was as a pet owner and a practitioner. I grew up in Oklahoma. My pets were very important parts of our lives. I was I grew up on a small ranch. That being said, my parents always had a little bit more pragmatic approach to pets, and they knew that their well-being came first and not their desire to keep their pets with them any longer. So that, of course, shaped my views. But I saw oh, the dog was probably 18 or 19, blind, diabetic, paralyzed, deaf, but still alive. And the dog used to come into the practice I was in and stay with us every day. And kudos to the client for this, right? But so that we could clean up after the dog when it, if it voided, if it needed its bladder expressed, and so that we could turn it every couple of hours so that it didn't get decubital ulcers. So that defined me as a quality of life veterinarian as opposed to a quantity of life veterinarian. So I think that that also gets back into price versus cost. And then we have to think of value, which Lucas has done a beautiful job of explaining. Again, you have one lived experience. And so for you, growing up and having those different things, it makes sense. And for me, it's like, I hear that. I grew up on a farm. So my relation to animals and pets is probably different than someone that grew up in the city with a household pet, like a lot of our pets were outside, right? My dad was not an inside dog type of person, right? So it was, it's definitely a different take to, I think, to pets overall. But Lucas, any thoughts on that? Well, and this comes together with the other side of the equation, you know, and something that I also been very interested in is comes from human health, which is we're trying to provide high value based care, but also they're looking at the low value care. So where are the waste resources? Where are things that we do that are actually harmful to patients where there is not really evidence-based evidence to provide some of the treatments that we do to humans and to animal patients? And really uh, things that we do to patients that have little to no clinical benefit as well. So understanding how what the low value base side of the equation is and how we can develop metrics to kind of evaluate what things we do that are low value base and how we can basically remove those from the equations. Something that I'm kind of reading about it and I'm very interested about it because it's, it's difficult. It will really require for us to change the way we do some things and change the behavior of the practice. Is there anything, and I'm sure, again, 100 veterinarians in the room get opinions from all of them, so I think this is tricky and maybe it's an unfair question, but are there things that, say, the industry, we'll just put the industry as a whole, 
is doing that you think is or falls into that low value of care that's not really evidence-based, that is something where you're like, probably don't need to do that, but it seems to be the standard because that's the way we've always done it. Yes. Is there anything that kind of triggers your mind as an example to that? Yes. And if and you I'm feel comfortable saying on it. Yeah. That's okay. Go for question. it. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, one of the things that I'm also very passionate about is antibiotic use, right? And a lot of times we overuse, misuse antibiotics, which is a resource that we should treasure but overusing antibiotics is part of low-value-based care. For example, we have a dog with a bioderma, and instead of using products that are non-antibiotic-based, topical products, you know, a large majority of veterinarians, all of these mentalities changing a little bit, goes to putting the dog on a systemic antimicrobial therapy with the risk of developing antibiotic resistance and some of the side effects that using antibiotics in pets or in humans comes with. So that is a clear example of low-value-based care that I think the industry overall needs to engage a little bit more in changing these, which I think is happening, but probably not fast enough. But great question. Yeah. Wendy, anything you want to add there? Then we'll kind of close. I love the antibiotic overuse or use analogy. I know that I just got the privilege to practice as a doctor. I still do a little bit of relief work. And prior to that, I had attended a six-hour seminar, international seminar on the microbiome and treating diarrhea. And between some of the CE I had done from ACVIM and ABMA, it was a relicensing year, so I was getting a lot of CE. And then this microbiome forum really drove the point home that we don't want to reach for antibiotics in pets with diarrhea, certainly not first, second, third, and maybe even not even third line. The dysbiosis that is caused and the damage to the normal flora in the gut is just so harmful. And so I think that antibiotic usage is really important. I'm a veterinarian that's very pro-preventive care. And I do believe in the value of routine blood screenings. However, I do believe that when you take a look at evidence-based medicine, probably doing some of these routine panels as wellness panels might be a bit questionable. That won't change my recommendations. I had great success running it. So on my end of one with my patients, being able to predict pro-disease early in the life stage kept me from seeing train wrecks. But I think that that would be an interesting area to look into a little more. Yeah, absolutely. So I know we want to be thoughtful with time. I wanted to kind of close with any last thoughts. And then also for listeners that maybe don't know you or want to connect, where would you send them? How do they connect with you? So Lucas, go first, any closing thoughts? And then where would you encourage people to, to reach out? Yeah, one of the things that probably we haven't discussed much is the fact that we need to include the owner in this conversation, right? Because we're talking about outcomes and Wendy mentioned quality of life. And really nobody has more information about what the quality of life of that pet or what the outcome of a procedure that we did is than the owner. So we really need to include the owner as in human medicine, they include the patient to gain this information. So this, this is key 
for value-based care. And sometimes I think as veterinarians, we try to throw the kitchen sink at something and we don't really listen to the owner. We really need to think about and really engage them because that will determine how successful we are in providing care, right? If we prescribe 10 things, but the owner cannot physically do it, is not going to do anything, right? So we engage in the owner, I think, is key. And then how to reach me. I'm very active on LinkedIn, so they can reach me there. And I have a website, vvn1health.com, that people can reach me there as well. So I think that we need to be much more transparent and proactive in talking about the costs of care with clients and how we present it. We don't need to present it. And there's so much research out here. Jason Coe has done so much out of Canada. As veterinarians, we present things in terms of tangibles, what they cost us, how much expertise we have to have, the time it takes. That doesn't resonate with clients. Clients want to understand how the diagnostic or the treatment will help in the health and well-being of their pet. So we need to take a step back and, as Lucas just said, focus on the client, but also on the pet and helping them understand the why behind the recommendation. And then clients want to be informed early in the cost of a process about the cost of care. If I had my druthers and if I could do a do-over in my own hospital, we would tell every client when they came in with a new puppy or kitten, this first year will be a little bit more expensive. The next year will be next couple of years, barring accidents, should be less expensive. But then at age six, we're going to want to start seeing either senior pets We're going to want to start seeing them twice a year and be a little bit more proactive with watching for disease occurrence. So if you can just set your clients up, because they have no idea what care costs. And then to reach me, again, I'm on LinkedIn. Last name is spelled H-A-U-S-E-R. So don't look under H-O. It's H-A-U-S-E-R. And my website is peakveterinaryconsulting.com. Peak is a nod to my home state of Colorado. And it's also a nod to being the best, being at the pinnacle of your game. Isaiah, it's been a pleasure to talk with you today. Lucas, I knew this was going to be a great conversation. I can't tell you, I could have sat here for another three hours and just talked. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. And yeah, always great to discuss these kind of topics. And hopefully we can bring it to the industry and create some interest. Great. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity again. Thank you both. As I kind of close again, one of the ideas of what I want to do is talk about really good openings for opportunities for associates, practice ownership around the country. So there's going to be more of these as they come up. But the two this week are a Central Indiana private practice, so equine or kind of GP companion animal. It is in beautiful Hamilton County, Indiana. It is full-time, base plus bonus. The team is fantastic. They are going to be a AHA accredited hospital. They have six doctors and you will have good flexibility on lots of good things. There is a link to this opportunity in the show notes as well. Again, Central Indiana, beautiful place to raise a family, good affordable cost of living for those that want to buy a house and can't afford it and where they're at, come into Hamilton County. It's a great spot. And then the other one, maybe you uh, are like, well, Indiana weather kind of sucks. I would much rather prefer to be on the beach. So what about a beautiful practice where you can walk to the beach. So Fort Walton Beach, Florida. So Bayside Animal Hospital. It's a currently two and a half doctor, non-corporate small practice, lots of growth and opportunity. It's been around for about 30 years, new ownership back in 2021. So there's a young 
Dacta has taken over and really excited about, I think, what the future holds. They're growing and definitely want to uh, expand and hire. So with that, if you're interested in that position, I'm going to put in the email in the show notes as well for Bayside, but it's BaysideVet251 at yahoo.com. And I will put in also the phone number. I need to get him to list that somewhere where I can send you a URL to apply, but yeah, check it out. So there also is no weekends there. So I just wanted to throw that out there. There's no weekends at this hospital. It's important that they are going to get out on time is the other thing they mentioned. So with that, thank you so much for listening as always. And I love feedback. So let me know if there's anything you would like to hear more about or things you want to hear less about. And with that, have a great week. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincier Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.